Well, thank you. Thank you for taking that opportunity to be flexible there to worship the Lord. I'm moved more and more every day um, to learn from God. I am still a pupil. I don't know if they even say that word anymore. It shows my age. <laughs> I'm not trying to be formal, but um, I'm still a student. Some of you may look up here and say, oh, no, he's a pastor. But no, I'm still a student. I'm a servant. I want to be. There are times I'm not a servant, and at times I'd like to be a servant. And I think that God wants to do a work. He wants to move in the hearts of people. He wants to challenge us to come to a place where we're willing to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I was moved today by that video because there are people who are desperate and destitute. And all they're looking for is some food just to survive. And I can assure you that I've seen that not to that level, but at times I've wondered whether we were going to make it or not. And I shared a quick story a few weeks ago, but I've had a few of those. And God has used those times to remind me who he is in my life. There's a name to God and the names of God are specific they're for a purpose. And so I want to encourage you as you're walking with the Lord and as you love the Lord, God has a work here at this church for you. And all you need to do is to be receptive. Thank you again. I know, Tony, I've said this for the third time, but thank you for sharing that video and that ministry. That's an important one. Well, today I wanted to share a little bit with you um, about Learning coming from setbacks to comebacks. And that's what we're going to look through the book of Haggai for the next two weeks. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, but I want to share a little bit with you about a man who didn't grow up too far from here, who was born in this area, North Bergen, New Jersey. You will know him uh, from the movie in 2005, a great movie called The Cinderella Man. Uh, James J. Braddock, or, he was a boxer back in the 20s into the 30s in the Great Depression time. As we know, he was a very successful fighter in 1923. He turned pro at 21, similar to like a Mike Tyson who was 20, 21, I think he was when he became pro. And he did really well. His first three years, he was 44 and two with two no decisions. And he was pretty successful. He, uh, he had an incredible right hook and a strong steel iron chin. Now, can you imagine if he met Rocky Balboa? And Rocky would say, hey, how you doing? And then he would say, how you doing, Rock? Hey, I heard you got a strong chin. Yeah, yeah, I got a strong chin. Well, I dare you to hit my chin. I think I got it even stronger than you. And so the thing is, is that these guys were tough. They were strong. They didn't let up. They always fought hard. They kept their punches up. But one fight he had, he had a chance to fight, was he injured his right hand severely. He had an opportunity to fight the number one contender, and it kind of threw him for a loop because not only did he injure his right hand, it caused him to not be able to fight as well. His following 33 fights, he ended up being 11 and 20 with two no decisions, so he fell, fell apart. Well, that only not just caused that to happen, he then could not fight for a while. And then what happened was after he could not fight, 
What else would he lean on to make a living, to bribe for his wonderful wife and three children? So he had to come up with a job. And back then, at the time of the Great Depression, it was difficult to find work. So he was a longshoreman down at the docks. But unfortunately, with that hard labor or laborious work, it's labor, he had to use his hand. But he couldn't use his right hand to work, so he'd overcompensate with his left hand. And then what happened was when the guys were calling them in, like you see in the movie, if you've ever seen the movie, they were calling them. He had to get to the front line to try to get picked, but I'm sure they looked down his right hand and noticed he probably wasn't using it or probably had just kind of kept it to the side. So he wasn't picked as often to work. And so he had to survive. He had to get by. He even got to a point where he was asking for relief and government relief, and it, it killed his pride. But lo and behold, what happened was he got an opportunity and he was handpicked to fight in 19, the earlier part of 1930s. He came back. He took the opportunity to fight again. He said, I got to come back to this. I've got to make a living. I've got to fight for something greater than myself. Now, most would say he would probably try to fight to become the champion, but that wasn't in his mind. He was fighting for something else. So he was handpicked to fight John Griffin and unexpectedly he won in the third round. He knocked the guy out. That shows the fortitude of a strong man. And that opened a door for Max Bear. Now this man in 1930 killed Frankie Campbell in the ring. This guy, Max Bear, was a German. He was a hard-hitting fighter. So there was question whether or not he was going to live if he went into the ring with Max Bear. But lo and behold, he had something to fight for. It was beyond his reputation. It was beyond his dreams. It wasn't that he wanted to become the champion, but they said, hey, this will be great. James Braddock against Max Bear. And of course it happened. But he had something he was fighting for that was beyond himself. And I want to just share a short little clip from the movie of what he was willing to fight for beyond himself. It's just a quick clip. From Chicago Trib. Hello, Jake. It's been a while. Uh, what's changed, Jimmy? I mean, you you couldn't win a fight for love of money, right? I mean, how, how do you explain your comeback? Well, you know, the truth is, Jake, for a number of years there, we, we was fighting injured. You know, uh, I broke my hand uh, more, more than once. Uh, I got in a car accident one time, was on the road, and I had to get that fixed uh i had a run of bad luck and uh this time around i know what i'm fighting for oh yeah what's that jimmy milk milk he's fighting for milk you guys might think that sounds strange but why was he fighting for milk because of his children part of the movie the Daughter wanted more milk, and they didn't have the money to buy the milk. See, deep in in the depths of his soul, he was fighting for something beyond himself. It wasn't about him. But he had a few setbacks, to say it lightly. But he said, in order for me to fight for milk and for my children, I got to come back. See, each and every one of us, When we're walking with Christ, we have setbacks in our lives, personal setbacks, church setbacks. The question is, in the depths of our being, what are we willing to fight for? Is it for ourselves, for our agenda, for our dreams? Or in this case, what are we fighting for? We fight for the kingdom. 
And if you want to be a part of the kingdom, guess what? What we're fighting for? To be a servant. And see, in order for setbacks to become comebacks, God has to be willing to use a servant. See, if you and I have an agenda to fulfill in a church or in our personal lives, we're going to find out walking with God that those dreams don't always come the way we planned them. I'm old enough now to look back. And I'm old enough to say that whatever dream I had is gone. But you know what? The greatest dream that God fulfilled in me was something I never dreamed. To be his child. And in order for me to get from setbacks to comebacks, I have to be reminded who I am in Christ. And for in order for me to, to, just to deliver my, and see myself coming out of something where God, God has to deliver me out of it. So I want to encourage you that God uses our setbacks for his greatest comebacks. I want you to just kind of get that into your mindset. Because when you're going through your daily grind and you're seeing the setbacks come, you're going to wonder, man, am I ever going to get out of this? You have to remind yourself that God always uses a setback for his comeback. For his comeback, not for our comeback. You see, with, with James Braddock, he wasn't doing it for himself. That's the one thing I see in his story. He wasn't doing it to become a champ. And that's what we have to see ourselves in. So what is a setback? A setback is a problem that delays or that stops progress or makes a situation turn worse. Every day we have an agenda. Every day we have a literal to-do list. And if something delays that, we question it. Now, when we're at work and we have to perform in order to get our job, you know, we get a wage and people who are over us, our bosses expect things to be done a certain way. If there's a delay and your boss comes up to you and saying, hey, did you get that thing done, what I told you? You're like, I'm still working on it. That could equal that he or she is thinking that you're incompetent. So you and I start thinking, oh man, I bet they think I'm incompetent. I can't get this done, but I'm really, I got a setback today and I got to get this done. Because lo and behold, you have a setback. It could be a personal setback. It can be a setback at work. It could be something that delayed you. But yet throughout the setbacks can be just a delay. And we struggle with the pressure of people thinking we're incompetent. Then stops. It stops the progress. We hate when things are stopped. When we're on a roll, you know, we're driving or we're moving somewhere. We don't like to be stopped. When you're driving and you're driving long distances, the last thing you want to see is brake lights. You don't want to see brake lights. Why? Because that means traffic's ahead and you got to stop. And if you want to move and you have an agenda and you got to be somewhere, brake lights are not the place. Well, see, that's what happens a lot in our lives. Sometimes setbacks can be brake lights. And then you have the worst thing. At the moment, something can be really, really bad, but it really isn't. We just make it. We just magnify it a thousand because we look at traffic, we look at our job not turning out the way it wanted to be, or dealing with a stubborn child, or the outfit was not for sale. We get frustrated, we're looking online, we just want everything to be perfect, and then things turn out worse. Or more serious, the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, financial debts, or marriage problems. But whatever the case, we always have these setbacks. The question is, how do we deal with them? Well, in the book of Ezra, as we think about the book of Haggai, you got to look back to the book of Ezra. If you could turn with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 3. It is just next to Nehemiah, if I can remind you, because I have to remind myself. And 
Keep your finger there at Haggai because we're going we're gonna to work through that as well in, in these coming moments. But just to set it up in chapter 3 of Ezra, you find that the people are now being deported after the 70 years of captivity with the Babylonians. And as they're being deported, there are three specific deportations, but this is the first one. And this is around 538 BC, just to give you some history. And what we're looking at is the three deportations were going from Israel to Babylonia, were 605, 597, 586. The three returns to the land were 538, 458 BC, and 445. The first one we see in chapter 3. And so I'm just going to read just along in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. So they're returning. They're trying to create themselves as a people of God. They want to go back to the Abrahamic promise, a land, a people, a nation. So as they're going back, they're setting up shop. And as they're coming back, they're coming together in unity because they've been away from the land for 70 years. I don't know about you, but when I'm, again, a little bit older, I go back to my hometown, it doesn't look the same. Can you imagine if 70 years later they're going back to Israel or Jerusalem area and it's not the same? Why? Because the settlers from the Babylonian and the Assyrian area settled in in the area of Israel. So they're going back and they're just not sure what to expect, but they're trying to create a new place, a a new setting. They're coming back. So verse 2, it goes on, it says, Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance to what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they're setting shop. They're setting it up for the Lord and to, to set up their repositioning with God in the land. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, the Babylonians and the Assyrian people, the descendants, they built the altar on its foundation and the sacrifice burnt offerings on it from the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices, according to the law. Verse 4, then in accordance to what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. Verse 5, after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings and the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacrifice or sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. What they're doing is set, setting up an offering for sin. They're coming clean. They're becoming a one new man of people. They're being unified. And then as they do that, verse 8, the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem. Now this is about 536 BC. It was 538, now it's 536. Officially ending the 70-year deportation. They're free. They're set free. They're no longer held by their enemy. Now, interestingly, it goes on to say this, that Zerubbabel, which we're going to hear about in Haggai, the son of Shatil, of all returned from the captivity and began to create this movement. But in chapter four, and they, been, they worshiped the Lord, they set up shop, they wept unto the Lord. And then chapter four comes. In verse 1, it says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel, the governor, 
and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Hashadon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now here's what's going on here. The people from Assyria and the Babylonians are coming in to the land of Israel. They've intermarried, the, 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 the women of Israel intermarried with the people of Assyria. That's where we get the Samaritan race. So this intermarriage that happens, they begin to worship God differently. They add God to the worship schedule. So they have a plethora of gods, polytheistic, all different gods in the high places, worshiping the false gods, idol worship. And then they just happen to throw in the God who created the heavens and the earth, Yahweh. And when they do this, they're saying, we'd like to join you. So why is it that in verse 3 in chapter 4, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, he says, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. Why? It wasn't because they did something differently. It's because they were worshiping other gods. And God alone is to be worshiped. That's called idol worship. Kind of like us. We have idols in our lives, whether we'd like to admit them or not. And at times we have an agenda and we intertwine or interweave God into our agenda. And then we call it godly. Now I'm not referring to methodology. I'm talking about message. And the message is that so often we have idols where we spend more time. Now, how do you know you have an idol? Find out your time management. What are you spending time on? Then that's your idol. You guys are looking at me like, what? Yes. So if I'm watching the Yankee game too long, it's an idol. <laughs> and my wife's questioning me on that. But I don't get the station because Yes Network doesn't come anywhere close to me. Now, if Yes Network was close by, then I'd have to deal with my idol. But the thing is, is that each one of us have to understand that God is trying to do that work in his people. Now, you have to set up this historical background before you go into, into the book of Haggai because... What happens in verse 5 of Ezra is here, or verse 4, excuse me. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and made them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. That is 16 years. 16 years of setback. In 538 BC, they began to start the building of the temple. They had the plans out. They were ready to do it. And then the people became jealous and say, you know what? We're not going to allow you to take over this area. We're not going to allow you to be successful. We're not going to allow you to come in and build the temple of of God. You know what? We're going to frustrate you. We're going to hire counselors and we're going to mess up your lives. We're going to create a huge, long setback. Well, guess what? It was 16 years. So in the book of Haggai now, in chapter 1, that's where we are. This is 16 years later in 520 B.C. From 536 to 520, they've gone through 16 years of indifference, apathy. Now, I know and you know that what happens is so often we go through that. If something doesn't work out to the way we want to and we try and we try and we try and we get opposition, we give up. We just say, forget it. Um, That's not worth the fight. That's kind of what happened to these Israelites. They fell into that trap. 
I have to be honest with you. I have fallen into that trap as a child of God. When the same old, same old status quo goes on, I fall into this attitude of indifference. What does indifference mean? means, oh, hum, who cares? No problem, whatever. Apathy is whatever. But the problem is God hates apathy. God hates an indifferent heart. He hates it because why? You're never moving forward. You're not willing to obey. Because when we become apathetic, we focus on self. We're always looking inward rather than outward. See, God is about his kingdom and his kingdom is about reaching those who don't know him, who are far away from him. God loves to reach someone who does not know his son. I'm working in contract right now with my father-in-law and it's, I've just been so thankful to him that you know, he's had some work and my father-in-law has a plumber and he's far from the Lord. Not only in his language, but because the way we talk. But you know, I can relate to him. I can relate in the fact that I can reach him in some capacity. Well, you know what happened? We started talking. He had a rough day. I met him like once or twice. And I said, hey, man, you're not so chipper today. What's going on, buddy? You all right? He's like, yeah, I got yelled at today by some customers. I said, not only, he goes, not only one, I got yelled at by two of them. I said, oh, you're having a rough day, aren't you? He goes, yeah. He goes, really rough. And he looked down because he's usually chipper. I said, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. Now you're here. We're going to have some fun. And I began to just encourage him. And I walked by him and just making him laugh. And he was laughing a little bit and everything. And he still looked a little down. He started opening up to me. And before he left for the day, because we were there late, he came to say goodbye. And he almost went to give me a hug. I shook his hand and he went like this. And I kind of blocked it. I I don't normally do that. I'm a full frontal kind of hugging guy. You know what I mean? I'll kind of say to the ladies, hello. And then the guy's like, boom, come on, man. Let me give you a hug. Because I'm that type of guy. But just, I just noticed he was initiating it. And you might think, wow, Bruno, this is weird. You're talking about hugs. But the thing is, is that for me, it was the fact that he was willing to open up in that way. He's not even saved, but he sent something in me, a joy. I can tell because I was trying to lift him up. Do you know that that's all it takes, just a smile and a hug? Did you hug your child today? Well, guess what? Maybe that's what it takes. They say that, isn't it, honey? She's in the back. They say if you hug your child for 10 or 15 seconds, it does something for their confidence. So if you guys want a hug, come on over and get a hug afterwards. You need some confidence building. But the thing is, you got to understand, God is desiring to reach people who are far away. And see, setbacks focus too often on ourselves. So I want to talk a little bit in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. And it's a setback of self, as I just mentioned. We're in 520 B.C. We have a new king. It says, in the second year of King Darius, in the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet of Haggai, the Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah and, and Joshua. We're going to learn about Zerubbabel next week. That's kind of cool son of Jehoshadak and the high priest. So we just heard them in Ezra. Now they're mentioned here in Haggai. And so we have here, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Very important statement right there. That is Yahweh Sabaoth. That is the Lord of hosts. 14 times is mentioned in two chapters. It's important because it it's, gives the idea of his power, his almighty power that he's creator and that he is Yahweh. But God is trying to get their attention. 
But one of the greatest things in our setbacks, our greatest setback is self and not the situation. Here they are in a situation. They're set back for 16 years. They could easily say, I'm done. I've had enough of this. I'm tired of the pain. I'm tired of the struggle. God is not coming through. We've been 16 years trying to rebuild this temple. I'm done. I'm going to do something else. Sometimes it's not the situation that's the setback, but it's ourselves. It depends on how we view it. If you look at James Braddock's life, he could have just kind of wild into the government relief program and said, I'm homeless. I can't feed my kids. I'm done. Or he could have said, you know what? I'm going to go beyond myself and do something about it and decide if I need to do a comeback, I got to do it. And see, that's the same thing with us. Our greatest setback is not the situation, but itself. And with the people, it was self that was stopping them from building the temple. And God had to do something about it. What stops churches today in our Western American church from moving forward? And I can assure you this, it's the selfish agenda of, of individuals in the church. Okay, whoa, whoa, what? I said, yeah, it's me. We all have an agenda and we think if we can push it through, then unity will occur. But unity doesn't occur when you have 20 people with different agendas. Unity occurs when people come together and saying, what is our agenda or what is God's agenda? Because if we can come together and realize that it's not about us, but it's about God's kingdom, then that's what it's about. A group of people from Grace Church come here to play, to to lead us in worship. It's not about them. We said that to each other before service. They said, even I think I think I think it was you. It was a Jeff. Jeff. Jeff said it's about the kingdom. And I said, I love that man. It's always about the kingdom. It's not about whether this church or that church. When we go before the throne of God, we're going to be a nation people. You're going to stand someone, you're going to stand someone next to someone you've not only never seen in your life, but someone who's a different race, different background. And that's awesome. And that's what it's about, the kingdom. So it's not about ourselves. That's number one. We have to realize a setback of self is sometimes our greatest setback is self and not the situation. Two, self becomes primary and God becomes secondary. So in the setback of self, we become primary, God becomes secondary. That's why God had to remind him in verse two when he said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Because see, this word is the Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty, Lord all-powerful. He has to remind them that this is my kingdom. This is my temple. And I'm asking you and calling you and commanding you to rebuild my presence. See, the temple in the Old Testament wasn't about a building. (laughs) Some of you might think it wasn't about the building. The temple was a location where God set his presence. But in the New Testament, where's the temple now? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you were bought with a price. The temple is you. We're the church. The presence of God is in us. Why? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was guaranteed, deposited in us until the day of redemption. So when you or I sin, we quench and grieve the spirit of the living God. We quench the presence of God in us. It's not about a building. God is doing nothing more different in here than he is outside. Because you're the church. I'm the church. We got to get away from the mindset of a building and get that this is the building. 
and we collectively as the members of the household of God come together in unity to bring glory and honor to our God. So when you hear the name of Jesus, I hope you have the freedom to say, yes, Lord, Jesus, I worship you. Because that's what it comes down to. And so it's important for us to understand. Now, interestingly as well, look at this in verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. These people. Interestingly, God calls them these people. He didn't say my people. He said these people. Why? Because these people were disobeying God. God said, you're not my people when you disobey me. See, he could have said my people are disobeying me, but God had something against these people. And we're going to find out. And we're going to find out in this chapter that he even places judgment on them. And the time has not yet come. You notice that when we say, well, it's not God's timing. That could be inactivity or activity. Sometimes when we say it's not God's timing, I can see that if you've worked through something, the Lord has shut the door. Then you can say, hey, it's not the Lord's timing. Rightfully so. But there are people who won't do anything for the kingdom and say, I don't think it's the Lord's timing right now for this church to do the A, B, and C. Have you done anything? No, but I just don't think it is. Well, what comes to that conclusion? I don't know. I just feel like it isn't. But have you prayed about it? No, I haven't prayed about it. I just don't feel like it is. And see the difference where, yeah, we've prayed, we've sought the Lord, and the Lord said, no, not yet. That's the difference here is they were inactive. They didn't care. So how could they make a statement and say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built? Who are they to say without hearing from God that it's not time for God's temple to be built? God already said 16 years prior it was supposed to be. He even had the king of Persia. We're going to find out when he stirred him up. But the whole idea is that God wants us not to be the primary. He needs to be the primary. He needs to be the priority. And we need to be the secondary. Because what we do too often is we call in our own agendas. We call our task God's task. But God is saying no. You know, in fact, this is what I want. They they gave their God their leftovers. They gave God their leftovers. Now imagine they decided the Lord would get their attention if their needs were finally met. How often do we give God our leftovers? How often do we settle for leftovers rather than a fresh home-cooked meal? Would you go to a restaurant and expect leftovers? Would you expect a waiter or waitress to say, hey, do you like it? That was yesterday's meal. Good? Yeah, yeah, sure. Am I going to get a good tip? Sure. But, you know, I mean, like, can you imagine if the leftovers were there? Now, with God, do we give him our leftovers? That's what these people were doing. They were giving God their leftovers. And that's what we have to say. Do we want to settle for that? Thirdly, when we focus on selfish gains, our lives turn to ruins. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while these houses remain a ruin. A few things to mention here. First of all, fancy paneled houses were only for the temple of God. As we look into Solomon, the king, Solomon, when he set up the temple, there was cedar from Lebanon. And even in chapter three that we just read in verse seven, they were going to get cedar from Lebanon. So this was paneled homes were fancy homes where the temple would get that, but not the individual people. But see, the people were so focused on their needs and on their own monies and on their wages that they began to fix up their own homes, but forgot the house of God. 
And see, what happened was that word house in the Hebrew is used the same for the private home and for the presence of God. Because God's saying that you leave my house in ruins, my presence, so you can be in the presence of your own homes. Meaning you don't spend any time with me, but you spend a lot of time with the things that you're doing. You have no time to worship me, but boy, you spend a lot of time management in the thing that you worship. You have an idol over here and you don't even know it. And you're not willing to spend any time. You tell me that the people of God in a church is going to move forward without prayer. You tell me that a church is going to move forward without the presence of God in their lives. You tell me that God is going to be glorified when his people are not spending any time in prayer or in his presence or worshiping or loving him. You're not going to see a church that's going to move forward. And that's the same thing with the building of the temple. They had their own agendas. They created it. They said it wasn't time. They were inactive. They weren't praying. They weren't seeking. They weren't worshiping. They weren't worshiping like 16 years prior in chapter 3 of Ezra. They stopped. They were indifferent. They didn't care. They became apathetic. And they said, you know what? We're done. And the Lord said, no, you're not. Not if I have something to say about it. Because, see, our lives become a ruin when we're not over here praising God in his presence, praying and seeking. When you get on your knees and cry out to God, you're going to see something happen. You're going to get a yes, no, maybe, or wait. Because each one of us are convicted, we should be, when we know that we don't, we don't spend the time that we should in prayer. We give up, we're indifferent, we're tired of the setbacks. We fought hard, we fought hard, and we say, I'm done fighting. We give up. And God's saying, no, because you're focusing on yourselves. Your priority's not on me, it's on yourself. It's on the fancy houses. And God said, that's enough. So then he goes on in verse 5. Because the need is for a checkup. Haggai 1, 5 through 12. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You know what the Hebrew means? Set your heart upon your ways. It's not an emotional thing. It's the rationale of your mind to your heart. Because in the makeup of your heart, God is saying, consider what you're doing. You know, when you go to the doctor's, and your diet consists of cholesterol and rich in foods, you know, like fried food, cakes, cookies, ice cream, kind of similar to my diet, although I can get away with it sometimes. And you begin to experience some pain in the pectoral area and digestive pains, and uh, you start to experience setbacks. You don't perform at work well. Um, you visit with John often. And what happens is you have you no know, effective time for children and home and play. And you start to wonder, what's wrong with me? I don't know. I'm eating pretty good. I had some hot dogs and French fries. And, you know, I had all kinds of fried good stuff. And then you realize you go to the doctor and the doctor takes your blood and you get the results. And you're like, oh, man, my cholesterol is up. It's sky high. The checkup is not to call you out and saying, you're a sloppy person eating all that junk food. Thanks. But the thing is, is that I say, the Lord is doing the same thing with us when he says, consider your ways. It's a checkup. He's given us a second chance. 
He's giving the people here a second chance. The doctor's saying you have a second chance to live. So checkups, sometimes we don't like to be checked up. If you're a young person, you don't like mom checking up on you. I know my son, he doesn't like that. He's like, mom, Giuseppe, did you do this? All um, right, okay, mom, it keeps on walking, keeps on, okay, dad, keeps on. I know, I know, I know. That's the favorite thing I hear. I know, I know, I know. But the thing is, the checkup is just to say, hey, buddy, hold on. I just want to make sure. Everything cool? I'm just checking up with you. And he's walking out the door and his zipper's down. You know what I mean? It's like something like that. You got to check up. You got to make sure, hey, you okay? Everything all right? Got to make sure you're looking good for school. But what happens is we get checkups and we fight against God. Children, teenagers, if you don't have a teenager, it's coming. It's coming. Because here's the thing. They don't like checkups. We don't like checkups. We don't want to be questioned. We don't want to know. Why? Because when a checkup comes, we know it's going to be exposed. Something's wrong. And God is saying to us that he wants to get our attention because even in the setbacks, he wants to give us an opportunity to come out of it. So checkup is always a good time to consider the consequences. Here are the consequences he gave. He says, consider your ways. You have planted much, verse 6, but you have harvested little. You eat, but you never eat have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put clothes on, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a, in, a, in a purse with holes in it. See, we settle for leftovers. We settle for second best. We, what God's saying is that, yeah, you may have some food, you may have some drink, you may have a home, but you're not prospering. Why? Because you're not considering your ways. Why? Because you're all about yourself. Why? because you're indifferent and apathetic. I need to do an assessment. God is considering an assessment. So what happens is God does this assessment. He gives them a second chance. Look at this, verse seven. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways again. And he goes on to say this. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. What does he do? Three imperatives. Go up, bring wood, build. That's it. And he goes on to say this. You, and what's the result? Here's the result. I'll be pleased and glorified. So stop thinking about yourself. Here's the checkup. Start thinking about me. Make me priority. Go up, get the wood and build a temple and I'll be glorified. You want to to bring glory to me? Do what I say. So he goes on to say this in verse nine. He goes, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be a little. What you brought home, I blew away. You know what that word blew away emphasizes on? The weakness and instability of man's efforts. Meaning you tried to figure it out on your own. You tried to go on your own and ignore me. You tried to live a life for me without me. But you're going to find out that when setbacks come and difficulties come and trials come, you're going to fall. I'm going to blow them away. Why? Because God loves you and I too much for us to get away. He adores us. He desires for us. He wants our presence with him. He enjoys relationship. He hungers for your presence in his presence. He wants that united relationship. Why? Because it goes back to the Trinity. It goes back to the Father and the Son. There's a harmonious unity that exists in the Trinity with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a relational Trinity. And God's saying, I created you to have a relationship with you. And I won't let you get away. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. When children go too far and skedaddle away, we go, uh, 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 get back. 
It's not because we're checking up on them because we want to hurt them, but because we love them. We want to get them by saying, listen, son, I don't want you to make the same mistakes I made. Daughter, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I made. I love you too much for you to fail the way that I did. But God is saying, I love you too much. I want to bless you. I want to bless you, but I don't want you to get away. So God, when he does a checkup, he has an intention because the consequences are for a purpose. And so it's important for us to realize that because we have to acknowledge that when we choose to do what we want to do. Thirdly, here's the thing. A checkup requires a response. Here's the response. It's a cool response. Verse 12 then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, jo- Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. That was the response. It could be disobedience or obedience. In, De- in Deuteronomy 28, you're blessed when you obey, you're cursed when you disobey. You have to respond. You and I have to respond. So then the Lord goes on. He says, know that the Lord has a comeback in mind. Where is it? Starts one. A comeback begins when his, when his people obey. That's when it begins. So if you and I know that there's setbacks here at the church. There's setbacks in your lives. What's the key ingredient? Obedience. That begins the comeback. You're still going to have consequences. You're still going to have struggles and difficulties. But the comeback begins. Now look at in verse 12. He goes on to say, The people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because their God, the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Most prophets would never, ever get this response. But the people responded with great obedience. Haggai saw it on the first try and they obeyed. Here's what happened. Because this is what the key word here is, remnant. A remnant people are comebackers. They never give up. A remnant are faithful people despite the setback, the trial, the struggle, the problem, the emotional struggle, the loss of a family, loved one, a loss of a job. They keep moving forward. They don't look back. They don't sit in the setback. They don't give up. They get up and they say, I'm going forward. They're comebackers. And the remnant God called on was his people to come back. And they did. See, a remnant simply means a faithful people who were willing. And we have to understand that what, what obedience and fearing comes is that fearing is the result of obedience. When we obey God, we revere God. We see him for who he is. Today, when that song was on, I fell. Don came over and put his hand on me. I didn't fall because I was hurting. I fell because of worship. I recognized who he was in my life. See, when we get self as the primary and God as secondary, we're not positioned well before God. God wants to change our position. He's primary, we're secondary. Because when we're secondary, we start to serve. When we're secondary, we don't complain. When we're secondary, we don't have a single agenda other than God's agenda. When we're secondary, we're a remnant people. We're comebackers. We never give up. See, a secondary position is where God wants to position us. When we obey him, we submit. That's a servant. So if you're in this church and you still think there's an agenda that needs to be fulfilled, God needs to deal with you. 
If I was in this church as a member and I had an agenda, God needs to deal with me. If I have an agenda in my own personal life that I want to fulfill that's outside of God's agenda, God's got to work on me. He's got to reposition me. He's got to reposition you. And see, it's important for us to understand that comebackers doesn't mean getting your way, feeling good. God is the one that ultimately performs the comeback. You see, this is what we got to get down to this last point. He pro- his promises provide energy, enthusiasm, and encouragement to accomplish the task. You see, the rebuilding of the temple only took four years later to happen. Why? Because God was doing the comeback. Here's what it says in verse 13 and 14. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you. You know what that is? Covenantal language. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Meaning, I've promised to Abraham... I'm not going to stop being with you. Even though you continue to lurk to self, I'm still going to come after you. Even though you fail and fall in sin, I'm still going to love you. I'm with you. It's an unconditional covenant. God is moving. Now, here's what he does. He's not only with us. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. 23 days later, they start working. Why? Because they were repositioned. They weren't primary anymore. They were secondary. God is interested in stirring you and I up. This is his comeback. If God wants to do a comeback in this church, this is his church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's God's church. All we need to be is submissive and obedient. You have a setback. I'm sure a handful of you have setbacks. You have personal agendas. You have ideas of what you think this church can become. Let's give that to God to decide what this church needs to be. And let's believe that God's going to do what he, he doesn't need us. He can get the rocks to cry and praise him. He is Lord God Almighty. He's the creator of heavens and earth. We are nothing in his sight. Do you know there are billions and billions of galaxies? And we can't even see one from here. Because that's how big our God is. God is interested in you and I. He wants us to move in such a way. Look with me quickly to First Chronicles or Second Chronicles chapter 36, 22 through 23. This is how big God is. Second Chronicles, I'm going to be finishing up with this. Second Chronicles chapter 36, just before Ezra. You got to look at this. It's just too cool not to pass this up today. Verse 22, 36, the last two verses of the book. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. This is around 538 BC. Throughout this realm and put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple. What? And he goes, for him at Jerusalem and Judah, any one of his people among you, may, may the Lord be God with him and let him go up. He stirred up the king of Persia. 
This was done 17, 18 years prior to when God stirred up his people. God had to stir up an unbeliever to build his temple because his people were too interested in their own needs. You see, you, you got to understand something. In verse 1 of Ezra, chapter 1, it says the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Lord moved it. He stirred it. God wants to stir our hearts. He's going to do it. All we have to do is be willing to obey and to surrender. It's simply this. A comeback requires the priority of being in his presence. It starts with prayer. It starts with his presence. You and I need to get back to the priority of his presence. We need to get back. See, you have a setback. God wants a comeback. God's going to do the comeback. You and I are not going to do it. The resources of self, he just blows it away. We need his resource. I want to encourage you as the worship team is coming up, there's something you and I have to do. Just like the people before the rebuilding of the temple, they responded well. They obeyed God. They sought God. They said, okay, Lord, we recognize you've called judgment on us. We need to do this. We're going to obey you. It was a simple yes, Lord. If you are in this church and you want to see the kingdom of God where lost souls are saved, where people from this ministry that Tony mentioned would come to Christ, where crazy stories of testimonies of lives being changed by Christ, if you want to see that happen, and I want to see it happen, I know you do too, then it starts with our hearts. Are you on your knees? Are you spending time with them every day? Are you praying? I've got to ask myself that same question. So I want to encourage you as you're just for that moment before we end today to ask yourself that question. Where is my priority? Where do they stand? I'm ready for a comeback. I don't know about you. So let's pray for that. Father, we just thank you for today. Thank you for reminding us in the book of Haggai that your people fell back in indifference. It's typical. It's common. We today as the Western American church and all around the world, we can fall into this indifferent apathetic approach. But Lord, when you assess us, we acknowledge that we need you and that we want to obey you. So Lord, for Bethlehem Church, I pray that you would begin to work on your people, that if they're apathetic, that you would assess them and that they would acknowledge and surrender and that this setback will become a comeback. God, I pray for that. And as we worship you right now, speak to our hearts so that we could hear your voice. In Jesus' name.